Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Mona Awad is the author of All's Well, a novel. Mona is the author of also of 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and winner of the Amazon Canada First Novel Award. And she also wrote Bunny, named a best book of 2019 by Time, Vogue, and the New York Public Library, a finalist for the New England Book Award, and is currently in development as an AMC series written by Megan Mostyn-Brown. She has published work in the New York Times Magazine, Time, Vice, Electric Literature, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. Welcome, Mona. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss All's Well. Thank you so much for having me, Sophie. It's an honor. Oh, you have such a great cover, by the way. Were you so happy with this? Tell me the story. Yeah, I was so happy with it. I was really freaked out by it, and I thought that that was good. But it's like, it's still playful, you know? I love all the colors. But I think they wanted to do something where, it, you know, the image embodied both theater, okay. which the book on and then the the you know the story of this woman's pain so the pills are what make up the mask it's so cool um, yeah I almost didn't notice at first when I first got it and then I was like oh my gosh those are pills anyway yeah it's very it's very cool well I guess on that note I, I should have started with this but could you tell listeners what your book is about and also what inspired you to write this I know it's your third novel why this one why this topic and like why now anyway that should take us for a while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, so I think I think basically I'll start with just talking a little bit about the book. So it's about a theater professor at a New England college. Her name is Miranda Fitch, and she is suffering from chronic pain that no one believes she has. And then she is just hell-bent on staging this student production of Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. But the students are mutinous, and they want Macbeth. And so Miranda makes a bargain with dark forces um, to ensure that her show goes on. And then she ends up living this kind of Macbeth offstage. And, and how, how I came to write it, it's sort of a dark supernatural comedy about Shakespeare pain and revenge. And I, I was 
going through chronic pain of my own when when I started having this idea that I wanted to write about pain. I was injured. I hurt my hip really, really badly and had to have surgery. And then I had a really rough recovery. I hurt my back in the process of recovery. So I ended up getting all these neurological symptoms oh. down my legs. It was the worst. And it made just everyday tasks so hard suddenly, like just driving in your car, going grocery shopping, sitting down. All of those things felt suddenly like insurmountable tasks. And another surgery wasn't an option. So I was just kind of in this weird rehab limbo, you know, going from physical therapist to physical therapist, consultations with surgeons, consultations with physiatrists. And I was feeling pretty helpless and pretty powerless. And at the same time, I was a graduate student and I was teaching and I was reading Shakespeare. And I just fell in love with the plays because they have these reversals of fortune that feel very, very exciting. And they were very exciting to me in my situation. And I fell in love with All's Well That Ends Well. It was just something about the play that really ignited my imagination. The heroine was both villainous, but she was also heroic. And she's so powerless at the start of the play, but it's a fairy tale. And she ends up taking this agency and turning the world of the play upside down. And she's able to kind of fulfill her heart's desire through this kind of nebulous, mysterious magic. And I just thought that was really fascinating and, and wanted to, to explore that story through the story of, of a woman who is, you know, she's desperate to stage it because she wants all's well that ends well. She wants a happy ending for herself, but she has to live this other kind of narrative in her actual life. Yeah. Wow. So did you have in your life when you went through your pain, like a mark, like somebody who actually was like a partner, like Miranda has a, a physical therapist type person. I think he's a physical therapist who actually oh, yeah. believes her and is like, we're going to do this and we're a team. And she's so relieved after so many, you know, misdiagnoses and attempts and whatever. And not that it was necessarily working, but just to have that validated. Did you feel like there was someone out there who finally you were like, oh, thank God this person gets me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had I had a few of those moments, you know, with physical therapists. I feel like it's just one of those things where it's so hard to cure chronic pain. It's so hard to cure people who are suffering from injuries, especially when they're complicated injuries. And let's face it, most of us are not textbook, right? So it's like, it's really, really hard to, to actually follow just this kind of physical therapist path of recovery and actually get better. Most people, I don't think follow that course exactly, right? So it was always hard. I had, I had people who were really well-meaning, but they were ultimately kind of at a loss because it, sometimes I think it's just a matter of time, you know, for these kinds of injuries. But it was still, it was so scary because I just, I didn't know what to do for so long. And I feel like there's so many people who are in that position. I met so many people like that just in the waiting rooms of these physical therapy offices, all of us just, you know, kind of going through the motions and hoping for the best. But, you know, it doesn't, it usually just doesn't work out the way that they hope it will, you know? Well, I'm really sorry that that's been a part of your life. I mean, that's really tough, especially, I feel like there's something with the, the word chronic, like it just sounds so bleak, you know, know. like it's never going to lift, like this is it, yeah. like a death sentence. Yeah. It's, it sounds terrible. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it kind of is, but then the, the interesting thing is I think a lot of it is just 
the fear of the unknown and the fear that I'm going to have this thing forever and it's never going to change. And the one thing that really helped me, apart from the Shakespeare plays, which I have to say really helped me. It helped me to get lost in another world. It helped me to get lost in theater. It got me excited about life. And that was really good for me. But I think too, just meditating, paying attention moment to moment, you realize that it's, it's not true that things always stay the same. Things are always changing. And that was a real comfort because I realized, no, what I'm feeling right now, it's not going to be this way forever. It will shift, you know, and that's good. Yes. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing I found really interesting is how the pain affected all of Miranda's relationships and how, you know, you start at the very beginning by you know, showing the contrast of the man and the ad to right. Right, the, the loving husband of the, guy, the woman in the YouTube ad who's just like waiting patiently and smiling. And you're like, that person's not being like, uh, I'm at a loss here, you know, like I'm giving right. up. And even the friend who used to be, yeah. they used to be close. And then suddenly she's like, maybe have you considered that this isn't real? You know, that kind of thing. And like just how people keep failing her, honestly. And like everybody is disappointing her in some way. What about that? I mean, that sounded... I mean, that also like compounds the isolation factor. Yeah, I think that was part of what made me want to explore pain in the story is just to explore that loneliness, you know, of what it feels like. And, and to some degree, you know, I think we all have it. It's not just physical pain, but it can be emotional pain or mental pain, right? There's something very isolating about it because I think when you share it, when you start to share it with other people, yes, they'll take it on. Yes, they'll listen to you if you have good friends and family around you. But what can be scary and what I was interested in exploring with the story is kind of like there's a shelf life mm -hmm. to it. Like there's, there's something finite about it. There's a limit basically to how much other people can bear your particular pain. And with that limit, when you come up against it, you, you are, it is a very isolating experience and it can be very scary. So I was very interested in exploring that and, and, and hopefully people who read it, who are going through that can connect to that and find some solace in that. Have you read Eleanor Henderson's new memoir about her husband's chronic pain and how people think it's part psychiatric and part physical and they don't really know? You have to read it. You guys should do an event or something together because she is the caregiver in this situation and you're like more of the prime, you know, you're the primary person. I mean, hers is memory. I mean, whatever. I think it would be interesting. It would be a very interesting discussion. Let me just say. Yeah, for anyway, sure. I, I feel like I've been reading a lot about, about pain. And I, I think I like that because the way, especially like how you do it here, it's like you, you get the reader to really feel it, right? You like wake up the reader and, you know, you can do that in many ways. But I think by putting someone in a place of physical pain, through your words is like, you can't not respond to that. You can't not feel it. And that's part of like the magic of great writing is like, like for how you put us in the shoes of someone who's really suffering and make us suffer for a little bit. And, you know, yes, yeah. we can close the book and walk away, but that lingers, you know, it doesn't just stay inside the pages. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that that was really important to me to kind of create that experience so that the reader really understands what that might be like, you know, what it might be like to kind of move through your life in chronic pain. And to do that, yeah, it's so weird because, and I'm sure you've had this experience, you know, I'm sure everyone has, but, you know, when you're in pain, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, and you're trying to communicate that pain to someone else, language is 
really feels like it comes up short, you know? It's so, so I used a lot of sentence fragments. I used a lot of kind of absurd metaphors like you do. Like Miranda says her pain is red and it's throbbing and it's like there is a chair on her foot, you know? And somebody else hears that and it, yeah, it sounds like crazy, right? But it's the closest she can come to, to communicating it to somebody else. And that communication is so important because it's the only way that you're going to be able to make your experience of your pain understood to someone else so that they can help you, right? Or at least so that you cannot be alone in it. And there's just something so, there's something so dark about the fact that language comes up short because it's all we have. But then there's also something funny about it too. And I tried to lean into that a little yes. bit. That there, It's funny that she's saying red, it's throbbing. And there's a, you know, there's a chair with a, like a fat man sitting on it on my foot. No, That's you have question. a, you have like this funny sense of humor. And I feel like I would be very nervous to be a student of yours ever again. I feel like you're, you know, you're like the person like sitting backstage, you know, like, or as well as Miranda. Maybe this isn't you, but definitely finding the humor. I loved when, uh, you know, I think it was Trevor, one of the yeah. actors, was, you know, and you're like, you'll have to do that as an actor. And then Miranda's like, Pah! like she wants to laugh out loud that like this pathetic student is actually an actor. I don't know. It's just funny. I felt like I was like in the teacher's lounge finally. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. And I love <laughs> those kinds of teacher's lounge like stories, like stories from the other side of the desk, you know, because it's it's weird. Like I I was a student for a long time and I felt like I had one understanding of what it's like to be a teacher. And I think I felt like teachers were pretty powerful, you know, in some ways, like they certainly thought that they had authority in the room, but it's so strange when you are actually a teacher, how you start to realize like how (laughs) it's a very vulnerable position to be in. There's only one of you and there's a group of them, you know, and they're young. And I think students like young students have more power than they know. Young people have more power than they know. And that's interesting. It's interesting to observe that as a teacher, having been a student, you know? So I was, I was interested in kind of exploring that power dynamic. The teacher is powerless, but she has the appearance of, of having power, but she does not. And maybe she rebels against that sense of powerlessness by thinking these dark thoughts about her students, right? I hate this. This seems like so ridiculous. But back in the day, like when I was in my 20s, I was a Weight Watchers leader. (laughs) So I like would go around all these meetings. And I used to be like a member, right? When I was like pre-wedding, you know, whatever. I had nothing else. I was, anyway. And there you like idolize the leaders, right? And then finally I was leader and I was like standing there with all these people looking up at me. And I was like, um, okay. (laughs) Now what do I do? And then I was so upset to realize that some of the other leaders would do what you're saying. And they would be like, oh my gosh, can you imagine, you know, that person, she comes every week, she's never lost a pound. And I'm like, you can't talk about the people like this. Like, you know, it was heartbreaking. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. 
Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus, or when my husband gets to LA, or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. I know. Yeah, it feels like such a betrayal. Yes. It's true. It's <laughs> it's really, yes. And it's it's funny, too, because, I mean, you know, they have their own life. Students have their own life, and they're, they're talking about you, probably. Yes. Like, the whole story about you. So yeah, it's really, it is a really strange position to occupy being in the front of a room, talking to a group of people who are just supposed to listen to you. You're supposed to be the person that facilitates and knows things. And maybe, maybe you don't know, maybe you don't know as much as, as you think you do once you stand up there. Right. It's like, it's kind of like theater. Vulnerability (laughs) mixed with power, like which will win, you know? Exactly. Well, so you've pursued all these degrees. You have a PhD and an MFA. Don't you have like a PhD and an MFA and something else in English or something? Yeah, I have a master's in English for like, yeah, for somebody who dropped out of high school three times. Not bad, huh? What? Why did you, wait, why did you drop out of high school three times? I don't know. You know, I just couldn't, for whatever reason, I, I couldn't be in the classroom when I was a teenager. It was just uncomfortable. I felt really out of place and just like I didn't, I didn't really feel like I belonged and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I would always leave and and I ended up having to go to an alternative school. This was in Canada. So alternative schools were free at the time. Thank God for them because I went to one and I was able to finish my, my senior year. And then I went to undergrad and, and then I got more serious about reading, but I needed that patience. Like I needed, I needed more support, I think, than like the school system at the time really provided. How did your yeah. How did your family deal with that? It was really hard because I, I was a reader. I was really interested in books. I would skip school to go to the library. You know, I would skip school to smoke cigarettes in my bedroom and read. You know, so they were they really struggled with it. But my mother was really patient with me, and so thank goodness, you know, I was I was able to kind of find another situation where I was, I could finish. And then in undergrad, I got really into reading and, and then I wanted, yeah, I wanted to keep studying. I kind of started to feel at home in it, but it took a while, you know? So I'm very like sympathetic. I think that might, might have something to do with like my fiction. I'm, I'm really interested in outsiders and I'm really interested in that feeling of unbelonging Mm -hmm. that a lot of people have. I think we all feel it at certain times in our lives. We just feel like we don't belong. I'm interested in stories that explore that feeling, that perspective. Well, that's great because I'm sure that will be such a comfort to everybody who has ever felt that way, you know, in one way or another. Wow. So 
that's when you discovered reading as much. But when did you start writing? Like, when was your first attempt at a novel? Like, was that when you, were you smoking cigarettes and also writing in a journal, or what was? <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, I was writing like my, you know, my sad girl poems and I was writing a lot of skits. I loved theater, even as a teenager, even going in and out of high school, I loved theater so much. And I would write, I would write for the theater club that would put on plays. They would ask me to write and I would, I would write skits for them. So that, that always excited me, like just dialogue excited me. So in my teens, I think I got into it, but I didn't get really seriously into story writing, I think. Until, until later on, I think, until I, I discovered fairy tales. And then I started understanding like the power of those plots and the power of those conflicts and tensions that fairy tales explore. That's when I really wanted to start writing novels because mm-hmm. the magic and the possibility in them really excited me. Wow, that's amazing. So how did you, what was the story of selling your first book then? Like, how did that come to be? And by the way, have you ever thought about just actually acting yourself? I feel like you would like, you You seem like you would be an actress. Yeah, I, I was so into it. You know, I love, I love giving readings and I love, that was the one thing about high school that I loved. Like I loved theater, but I think, I think I got really shy, you know, and then I wanted to be more behind the scenes, but it's like, it's a true joy of mine. And so that, that's why I think All's Well was such a, such a pleasure to write is because it kind of, it explores, it, it really is a love letter to theater. You should put it on as a play, the book. Yeah, I know. I that really would be would so like meta and cool. <laughs> that would be so fun. I would love to do that, honestly. But yeah, my first, my first book, you know, I was working full time as a bookseller and I was, I was writing on the side, like writing at night, writing in the morning. I had this idea. It was so funny. I remember writing in a notebook, like I had the idea, 13 ways of looking at a fat girl. I knew the title. And I wrote to myself, this was in like September of 2009. I wrote, you will finish this by December. <laughs> it just, it took me six years to finish it. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I was, was so delusional. I thought it would take me three months. It did not. I applied for an MFA because I wanted, for a funded MFA, because I I felt like I would really dedicate the time to it, time that I didn't have because I was working full-time. Although, honestly, if I hadn't, I always ask myself, if you hadn't gotten into the MFA, would you have finished? I would have. I just think it would have taken me maybe a little longer. But I did get in, and I wrote for those two years. And then when it was over, I had the book, and I sent it out to agents and got an agent, and then we sold it that fall, the fall after. Yeah, so good. And then tell me about your middle novel. Now I have to go back and read these ones. Yeah. So Bunny, Bunny, (laughs) Bunny was crazy because Bunny was real leap from 13 Ways. 13 Ways was very realist. It's about body image. It's about women and body image. And it was short stories that tell the story of this one woman kind of moving through a body image struggle and how her body image kind of affects all these different aspects of her life. But Bunny was all about my love of fairy tale and horror and like mean girl movies, like in the eighties and the nineties, like Heather's craft yeah. <laughs> and pretty in pink and all that. So it's kind of a, tr- a tribute to that. And it's a tribute to outsiders. It's about an outsider who gets sucked into this clique of girls who call each other Bunny. And that one I wrote really, really 
fast, but it was really scary because it was such a leap. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that as a PhD student. That was my, because I was a creative writing student. So that was my, my thesis was, was funny. Wow. So is this your, this is your only non-school deadline focused manuscript? It is my only <laughs> one. It is my only one. And I, you know, it's weird because it's true. I had a deadline that the institution gave me, you know, to finish. And that was helpful. But to be quite honest, the thing that really worked to get Bunny done, I highly recommend this for anyone struggling with deadlines, with accountability, with just kind of being motivated to keep going with your project. My friend and I would, we drew up this contract. It's based on this contract that Amy Bender has that she published it in O Magazine a while ago. It's a writer's contract. And you get somebody else to be your mentor. You set deadlines for yourself in the contract. And then you're accountable to your mentor each day. So my friend and I did this over the course of the summer and I would just, I said, I'm going to write 1,500 words a day. And when I'm done those 1,500 words, I'm going to text you that I did it. And I have to do it every day. And so I would do that. And then she did the same. She would text me and I would, you know, so we were kind of accountable to each other and we got drafts done of our novels that summer that we did that. And it was so helpful to have a friend to be accountable to more so than, than the college, I would say. Did she, did she sell her book? <laughs> she did. Yeah, she did sell it, which is, yeah, so cool. We both sold them, I think, around the same time, too. Aw. That's like yeah. they're like cousins, these books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to have those, those, those people in your life. Like, just, they don't even need to be writers, but just creative people, I think, who understand like how, how important it is to have those deadlines mm-hmm. and to be accountable just to get a project done because you can really talk yourself out of it. You know what I mean? Like you can have bad days where you're just like, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't want to do this. I have so many other things to do. do I, should I really make time for this thing? Mm-hmm. Yes, you should because it's what you really want to do, right? It sounds so simple and yet so powerful. <laughs> it's so hard, but it's not, yeah, it's so simple. Like, I know I want to do it, but do I really want to do it today? Or like, you know, is this the afternoon? I don't know. I think I'll wait till tomorrow. <laughs> so what are you working on now? So now I'm working on, I kind of see Bunny, All's Well, and this new one as a trilogy. They all have the fantastic in them in some way. This one is called Rouge, and it's about a woman who gets sucked into this really sinister beauty cult in California. And it's, it's, it's got a lot of elements of horror, but it's got fairy tale in it too. It's, real, it's been really fun to work on. There so. is a book I did two years ago called Rouge. Not I did. I oh. interviewed the guy. Is that okay? You can still do it. His name is oh, yeah. Richard Kirschenbaum. <laughs> yeah, nice. Just in case there's any intellectual property issues or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> But that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's so compelling, like the idea of, of red, but in French. So the character is, is uh, she's uh, French-Canadian, yeah. as I am. Oh, okay. And I know you just already gave a lot of advice, but any other advice you have for aspiring authors? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the advice that I gave myself when I was working on Bunny, which was my second book and was a big departure. And I think because it was a big departure, it felt very scary and I doubted myself a lot and wanted to give up on it a lot. And my negative self-talk was, you know, nobody would want to represent this book. Nobody would want to publish this book. Nobody would want to read it. And so what I ended up doing just to counter that was I just told myself, okay, let's say that's true. Do you still want to write it? Like, are you still interested in this story? And the answer was yes. And, and when the answer was yes, I realized that 
I wanted to tell the story independent of the outcome. And that was so empowering because it was really about the, the process. It was really about the journey of writing the story. It was about the story itself. And I think that that's really good for, it's a good question for a creative person to ask. Love it. Well, my advice to you, if you choose to accept it, I think you should write this as a play. And I think you should produce it this year while you're up in Syracuse in the dead of winter when you're despairing about the weather, which how can you not? So I think that should be like your side project and you can get all the students to produce it for you. Oh my God. I love that idea. I could, it could really be very mad at that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then you could like live stream it if you wanted and yeah, just like link it to your book sales page and stuff. Yeah, it could be great for the paperback release in the summer. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. I love that, Sibby. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) I love it. All right. (laughs) Well, I'll work on the playbills and you can do the casting. (laughs) I'm kidding. I do think that would be fun for you to do. I mean, I think that would be fun for someone to consume that you do. And I don't know if it would be fun for you. It might be terrible, but... I, I think it would be really fun. I think it would be an adventure. Yeah. And that I'm up for that. Nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you again for being so flexible with timing and congratulations on All's Well. And I feel like I need to keep this in my, in my like, you know, what do you call it? Where I keep the meds and, you know, lotions and potions, cosmetic cabinet, you know, Absolutely. No, I... You should really make some little pouches, like some pill boxes and stuff. Oh, yeah, we did. We did. You did? did. Okay, good. Great. Okay, good. I'm out of ideas. All right. Have a great day. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was a total pleasure. Oh, good. Okay. Enjoy your new home. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 